For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. On Monday, the Oklahoma City School Board unanimously approved the superintendent's Pathway to Greatness, which closes 15 schools and reconfigures or relocates 17 others. The plan includes changes to school boundaries, grade structures, and feeder patterns, meaning thousands of students will attend a different school beginning in August. Ryan, what do you think of this move by the state's largest school district? It, it's one of the largest moves in the state's in the school district's history and then education's history in the state of Oklahoma. It will redefine the way Oklahoma City public schools look. I think that there are a lot of open-ended questions here about what the repurposed buildings are going to look like. I think that a lot of the concern right now is around what this does to neighborhoods. Many of the schools that are being closed are neighborhood schools, and they've become anchors in those neighborhoods uh, that are really important for that community. <clears throat> and so whenever you get rid of them, they're, the school district saying they're going to repurpose them. What does that ultimately look like? But at the end of the day here, what we're going to see is uh, hopefully more uniform delivery of services to students across the state or across the Oklahoma City public schools so that we've got students that are getting art instruction, you know, getting you know, better uh, access to counselors, to everything else that everybody has in these school districts and not just isolated in certain pockets. Yeah, and, even, and this is 60,000, it was built for 60,000 students, now only has 46,000 students. So really, it it's kind of doing what it needs to do, which is to consolidate. Absolutely, and I think Ryan is right. I mean, this has been something that has been coming for quite a while. I mean, and, and clearly the process has been uh, very uh, very thoughtful, very strategic. I think the fact that the school board was unanimous in its vote uh, said that uh, they had done the best possible job at this moment in time of uh, launching a new, uh, really a new era in how they want to move forward uh, in uh, uh, providing uh, providing uh, the best possible education for all of the schools. And as one of one of the board members said, regardless of their zip codes. So um, I think it's not about savings uh, and, and the money side, because in a $600 million uh, annual budget, I mean, they're only talking 4 million savings and the savings really is being redirected into uh, uh, what Ryan talked about in terms of uh, adding art, music, uh, physical education. I mean, counselors, nurses. I mean, a, a lot of uh, a lot of folks that um, have to be in this equation. That you know, when you really look at the numbers, uh, the bond issue will alleviate some of the uh, bond money. Will alleviate some of the uh, the need for the eleven million dollars or whatever it's going to take to kind of move these schools around, mm-hmm. get them set for an August twelfth uh, uh, school opening. So. You know, I think the long and the short of it is everyone, uh, you know, I think steps into this trying to be very optimistic and uh, uh, knowing that something had to take place, that there was it was going to be painful. Not everyone was going to be happy, but at the end of the day, they got the best result they could. Ryan, I'm a little torn about this because the two <clears throat> elementary schools I went to, Linwood Elementary and Horace Mann Elementary, are two of the schools that are going to be closed. What do you tell these neighborhoods, these people that basically are losing their schools? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell them. I mean, I, I think that if you've been through a community that's lost a school in the past, every community that's been through that, small or large, knows how difficult that is. We're going through 15 closures right now all at once. And so uh, these schools, you know, I know, you know, the, the elementary school that my son goes to, that my daughter will go to next year, it's it's a cornerstone of our neighborhood. You know, Cleveland Elementary, you know, fortunately one of the schools, at least fortunately for us, right, one of the schools that's not on the closure list, it's part of that neighborhood. It's part of the community. The, the community's named after that school. Right. Uh, and so... Um, you know, every one of the, whether it's, you know, Gatewood or Edgemere, uh, any of these neighborhood schools, um, even if they've had low attendance rates, a lot of this has been, um, 
as, as important as the schools are to the neighborhoods, they just haven't been functioning the way that they ought to have been. And, you know, you had low enro- enrollment rates, low performance rates. You know, it's hard to keep teachers in some of these schools. You've had a lot of neighborhoods where people have moved their uh, students out to private schools or have relocated them to other mm-hmm. uh, uh, school districts. So, you know, it's been, this has been coming for a long time. It's not going to be easy, but it, it may very well be the only solution that the, the district and, has And right I think now. that's right. When you're operating at 60% capacity, I mean, that doesn't provide for the right, uh, the, the right atmosphere, the right uh, resources, everything to be in place to really provide the kind of education that, that every Oklahoma City uh, student deserves. But now repurposing, re uh, kind of realigning these schools and making these changes, that's going to move it up to 84 <laughs> percent was the number that they said in terms of capacity that makes it a much a much better process across the board and we'll just have to wait and see I'm sure there are going to be some more adjustments as they get into the next school year that they're going to have to come back and recommend to keep this moving forward and, and hopefully as we learn more about how these buildings are going to be repurposed it could be something where the neighborhood still has a, a functioning operating uh, core at their community center Republican lawmakers plan to fast-track bills, giving more power to the governor over five agencies, the Departments of Corrections, Transportation, Mental Health, as well as the Oklahoma Health Care Authority and Office of Juvenile Affairs. Five measures moving quickly through the legislature give the governor power to hire and fire agency heads and appointing most of the boards and commissions. Neva, Governor Stitt, seems supportive of this measure. Absolutely. This is something the governor said from the outset he wanted. I think what we have seen in this uh, in this early part of the legislative session is that, that there was a lot of very intense negotiating back and forth between the House, Senate, and the and the governor uh, to come up with a deal that, uh, that they all could live with. Unfortunately, it became a, a partisan a, a partisan vote, which I think even the governor, uh, by some of his comments, clearly was frustrated by, hoping that this would be something that would be viewed. It's about all Oklahomans, about making government more transparent, more efficient. Uh, uh, and I think that the, the notion that somehow that you're going to trade experienced professionals as these agency directors for uh, political appointees by the governor, as some of the, the Democrats uh, suggested, is just bogus. And I think that the give and take of the checks and balances that they came up with in terms of the governor being able to make the selection of the agency head, but that they still would keep the governing boards uh, while the governor gets five of those appointees and the House gets two and the Senate gets two, still there is the... There is the uh, uh, the opportunity to have a board in place. What was injected into the board process was the ability to be able to remove board members, and that included uh, the House and Senate being able to remove an agency director, executive director, uh, by a two-thirds vote in both chambers. So there was a lot of give and take, a lot of negotiating, but at the end of the process, uh, the governor got what he wanted, and I think it is uh, clearly a, a, a seismic change in terms of how government is going to function in the future in Oklahoma. Yes. Well, yeah, I don't think that it's fair to cast the uh, criticisms from uh, folks like uh, Emily Virgin, the Democratic leader in the House, or Senator Julia Kurt in the in the Senate as partisan. And, I mean, they, they happen to be Democrats, but what they're raising are, are very legitimate concerns here. Uh, whether the, con- the concerns are we're going to have uh, political hacks that are going to be placed in these positions, and I think that that's, you know, you know, not the, I think that's one of the more spurious arguments, but I think it will politicize the pro- the process. And that's what uh, Representative Virgin and Sen- Senator Kurt and others have been uh, concerned about is that we politicize this process in a way that instead of having board uh, boards hiring folks that the governor has put forward, we're going to 
these are essentially going to be political picks. And now they're not only political picks in the sense that the governor has a say in uh, if they're hired. Now the legislature has a say in whether or not they stay there. So in the event that right now we have a pretty unified government right now, at least from the Republican standpoint, Republican control in the House and the Senate and the Republican governor, if you end up in a situation where that's not the case, whether it's Republican infighting or Republicans and Democrats at some point controlling different branches of government, <clears throat> we could end up in a really interesting situation for an agency head of who uh, who do they answer to? Who's their boss? Do they answer? I mean, I guess we can say they answer to the people of Oklahoma, but do they answer to the governor or do they answer to two thirds of the legislature? Um, the other part of this that I think is you know, when we we you know you heard it here uh, last week uh, first, folks, because we said that the boards were probably going to stay. We weren't going to see a plan that didn't have boards, yeah. but the board now is at will, and so if you're a board member. And you want to be a contrarian on that board, which that's an important role for some people to play is to be a contrarian. You might not be long for that board. So I think that we're going to take uh, a lot of transparency where you have Open Meetings Act that apply right now. Uh, they may not apply to some of these meetings. We may have folks that uh, can't feel like they can say everything that they want. And we're confusing accountability and transparency with the consolidation of power. Lawmakers pass legislation rejected by voters in November. The Senate Business, Commerce, and Tourism Committee passed SB 902 to allow eye doctors in big box stores like Walmart. Ryan, is this going against the will of the voters? You know, I, I think that at first blush it, it could appear that way. And uh, the the lobby for the Oklahoma uh, Optometry and Ophthalmology Association, they're doing a great job of, of casting that as going against the will of the voters. But if, if you'll go back and listen to some past episodes of This Week in Oklahoma Politics, you'll hear Neva and I talk about one of the real concerns with that state question was not the substance of what it did, allowing uh, optometrists to operate in big box retailers, but where it was going to be placed in the state constitution versus in a state statute. So that if if the lawmakers needed to, to at some point come back and modify uh, that because they, something was working or wasn't working and they wanted to improve it or uh, do away with a part of it, that's really difficult if it's in the state constitution. And I think that a lot of concerns on both sides of the aisle with that state question where the fact that it amended the Constitution and not statute. This amends statute. Uh, so that's that's a very different, we're talking with, about a very different animal. Now, the, the substance of whether or not you think this should happen or not, yeah, that's still a real political question that people get to decide. Uh, but it should be out there uh, at front and center that this is not the same thing that voters looked at back in November. Neva? I think it's not the same thing, but it is a continuation of something that has been trying to go through the legislative process for several years then they went the direction of a vote of the people that didn't that didn't uh, pass and so I think what we're seeing now is back back to the legislature and this give and take of trying to fine-tune a bill that they can get enough support to actually get it passed and 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 Ryan is right we talked about this many times yeah. uh, in the past and one of the things that uh, that I remember saying was the fact that if it didn't pass that the that in all likelihood likelihood they would come back to the legislature and start through this process again and that's where we are so they've gotten it out of committee they have alleviated some concerns by uh, saying that uh, uh, that there's basically a, a phase in on the number of stores that can open optometry practices each year that that the uh, it has to be an independent optometrist <laughs> Uh, to open, like in one of the big box stores, so they are they're they're trying uh, uh, from the from the side of the kind of the Walmart side, the big box store side. They are trying to come up with something that will be. Um, 
amenable to, to a majority of the lawmakers if they can get it passed and alleviate this notion that it's really kind of flying against the will of the people who have already spoken on this issue. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this kind of continues to move through the process. And I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think anybody would be quick to handicap it and say it's a, a foregone conclusion which right. direction it's going and, to go. And opponents have said that this, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the <laughs> optometrists usually say that, you know, the problem is it's going to reduce quality of care mm-hmm. because you'll basically have eye doctors, even if it's a, a private organization, inside of a Walmart rather than at your actual eye doctor. Well, and you know the you know, scope of practice issues are one of the perennial issues that happen at the Capitol. It, it they 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 often fly under the radar. You know, it used to be optometrist and optometrist versus each other, and now it's optometrist versus Walmart uh, or independent optometrist versus Walmart. And so, you know, who can do what, where they can do it? These are issues that the legislature wrestles with every year sure. on a number of different issues. You know, I think that lawmakers would be wise to look at that. I, you know, I will say this, um, that as much as I believe this is a different piece of legislation and it's unfair to say that the voters rejected this, um, in all honesty, I doubt that as much as I, I hope that Neva and I are influencing the way that people think about, <laughs> not, not how to think, or not, not how, no, what to think, but how to think about politics in Oklahoma, um, I doubt that there were very many voters that went to the polls and said, I'm for this or against this on the basis that it's in the Constitution versus statute. So lawmakers, if they vote for this, are going to have a hard time going back to their constituency and answering and saying, well, this is different. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, you know, threading that needle could be back, uh, be hard back home. And I think it'll be interesting. I mean, there, there are some, even in, among the optometric association that are saying that they've been told, whether this is hearsay or not, that Walmart is basically taking the position that if they are unable to come up with an agreement during this legislative session, that they will go back in 2020 uh, to the people and have another state question um, <clears throat> on the ballot. So I think I think there's a, a real hard charge on both sides uh, on this issue, and it and that's what makes these types of issues so fascinating because they really do engage all parts of not only the legislative process but Oklahomans. I mean, rural, metropolitan. I mean. Uh, uh, from every, you know, from every side of the uh, uh, debate, you see all of these, uh, all of these ideas infused into uh, the discussion. It, it's interesting. It hasn't really risen to the point. It doesn't appear that the public has really gotten fully engaged in it. And I think that's where it will become more fascinating if they try this attempt at a lot of uh, a lot of paid uh, uh, efforts to mobilize just rank and file voters out there to get get engaged with their lawmakers. Oh, Ryan, Ryan, you're right. These these kind of bills go through all over the place, and I'm sure if this had passed two or two, three years ago when it first came up, I don't think any Oklahoman would have even noticed. They would have gone, oh, look, there's an eye doctor in my, my Walmart, where the, obviously the lobbyists for the eye doctors are, are fighting against it, but it wouldn't have gotten the public eye unless you had put this. So actually... The whole fact that it went to a vote of the people is now why the public notices. Yeah, and I think that you know that you know strategically, know you know, strategically would Walmart uh, have been in a better position if they'd kept going back to the legislature? If they're doing what Neva's saying, what they're saying is that we have an endless well of money uh, to put into ballot measures from now until the next ten years to make this happen. The other the other context that this is happening in that that I think is important. I don't know how it figures into the or factors into the the, the political. Uh, outcome of this, but we are watching the the way the healthcare delivery systems are changing in the United States right now, here, right here in Oklahoma. I mean, if you've gone to a CVS, you might have seen a minute clinic. You know, mm-hmm. CVS yeah. is doubling down on 
uh, Minute Clinic. So you're, you're seeing more healthcare delivery and providers in retail environments. And so the novelty of that, I think, is uh, going to go away real fast. We're going to be used to walking in and, and seeing, you know, you know buying uh, you know, a pack of gum and, you know, getting your blood pressure uh, or and your, flu, uh, shot uh, and your, your yeah. flu shot and everything else, you know, right there in the same place. And so the idea that anybody would be against having an optometrist uh, in a Walmart right now may make sense. Uh, but 10 years from now, I think it's going to be a hard sell. Well, and you have and you have other health related issues that are really at the forefront right now in some of these uh, legislative discussions the anesthesiologist nurse practitioners mm-hmm. i mean is a yeah. very intense uh, back and forth uh, engagement uh, during the during this legislative session and they are broadening their uh, broadening kind of their outreach in terms of trying to mobilize folks through direct mail and other paid uh, uh, advertising to try to gen up some uh, uh, some elevated discussion and debate on the issue so how of these kind of merged together uh, now we're now that we're kind of past the first deadlines and we're really kind of getting down to the, yeah. the to the give and take of which bills are really going to make it to the uh, to the uh, finish line I think uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch these in particular in terms of scope of practice bills no one will ever outdo the fight between veterinarians and teeth floaters oh I mean that <laughs> teeth floaters. I would agree <laughs> so if there's a, if there's a and, and, this week know, in Oklahoma and, uh, uh, drinking game somebody just passed well, you know, out and, it, and it's interesting <laughs> When you have so many freshman lawmakers, when that very point has been raised, I mean, in in the hallways and in discussion, uh, many of them are absolutely unaware, don't remember, remember. didn't follow, and have no sense of what that really really was all about. And I think that factors into all of this when you have so many folks up there that are really just, uh, they're in the throes of this first session. They're not used to this intense lobbying by all sides uh, in a very professional, very effective manner and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that factors into the equation as well the number of stories i had to do describing what teeth floating is <laughs> well and then it became a referendum on reproductive rights uh, it was it was the most bizarre the most bizarre episode in, in my entire history at the legislature so in oklahoma's oklahoma's senior senator senator says he might vote for a resolution blocking president trump's emergency declaration to build a wall senator jim inhofe says he's concerned about the president taking money away from military construction appropriations neva is inhofe right to be concerned here well i think every senator is is concerned when you start looking about the impact in your own in your own home state. And in, in the instance of Oklahoma, uh, according to the published reports, $175 million in military construction projects right. in our state could be affected if this, if if uh, uh, the president is able to continue to uh, move forward on this idea of tapping into these accounts for the border wall. So, I mean, when you, when you have to come home and explain that, uh, uh, that becomes a much different proposition than just the general kind of big picture look at it from from the Washington, D.C. side. So I think it's going to be interesting having passed in the House. Uh, I think there were only... uh uh, as I recall, maybe 13 Republicans that uh, uh, that joined with the Democrats mm-hmm. uh, on that. But now, you know, on the on the Senate side in this vote, they need four Republicans, uh, and they may well have them. I mean, there's a three mm-hmm. that seem very committed to uh, uh, to voting no, a fourth that is likely. So um, this really sets up for the first veto for the president potentially uh, in his uh, in his time in office. So 
Um, we'll just have to see how this rolls out. But I do think, I mean, when you have senators like Senator Inhofe, who is recognized as one of the solid conservatives, who is is uh, even in an editorial in the Tulsa World basically saying that uh, the president should uh, listen to folks like uh, Inhofe and George Will and others who have said that preserving the constitutional order of appropriations is more important than mm-hmm. maintaining some campaign promise. Those are those are big issues that really, uh, I think, uh, give pause to a lot of folks in this conversation. Ryan. Well, I, I don't think that he'll be the fourth vote, um, but he may be the fifth or the sixth. I mean, he's, I don't think that Senator Inhofe wants to be the, the, the deciding vote here. Um, but once you have four, once you've got four, I think that he'll probably be a, a, a yes vote on the resolution that would go in front of the president's desk. I wish that the reason that he were doing this were because of the, uh, you know, everything from the, the, the immigrant caravan, the bogus news stories about uh, the immigration caravan that's coming to the United States, the, the bogus idea of the crisis on the border, that the, the national emergency really exists there, um, you know, the, the, uh, the ignoring of the fact that you know, ports of entry are the places where we're really seeing human trafficking and uh, you know, fentanyl coming into the United States. It's not at the southern border. You know, all of that's just manufactured political crisis. I wish that that were the reason that he's against it. But as he said, it's his own backyard here. This is defense spending, defense appropriations, uh, you know, a lot of money for the private sector that could be at play here, a lot of money for military installations right here in Oklahoma. So however he gets to that vote, I'm glad that we've got it. I do think that there, in all likelihood, I would I would expect that there's a good probability that there will only be four Republicans, uh, that, that it will be the predictable Tillis, Collins, and Murkowski with probably Rand Paul or one of the others coming in as the fourth. And when that happens, I really don't see the Jim Inhofe's and some of these other folks stepping across and, and being a no vote because what will what will be intended was accomplished and so uh, I don't in in light of looking at the future and re-election uh, in 2020 I think a lot of these folks are going to step back and and let this just move through the process as as it is. But what happens when he vetoes it and then it comes back to the House and Senate for a re- veto well, override and and maybe then and, that argument comes and up. And I think and I think that becomes a different a different proposition but a lot of you know a lot of pretty seasoned uh, veteran political analysts on the hill suggests that uh, that there will not be the votes there for the override. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. the vote's there for the override. I think that Senator Inhofe, if he were going to vote no, he would need to vote no on the original resolution to send a message to the president, don't veto this, go back to your emergency order, rethink that course of action. And, <clears throat> you know, I think, you know, adding to the reasons that he should be against this, it's, you know, similar, we're talking about, uh, you know, the separation of powers here in Oklahoma uh, with these agency bills. This is a separation of powers issue. This is executive overreach. It shouldn't matter who the president is, what party they're from. It shouldn't matter what party controls the senator, the, the House. This is about the integrity of the institution. And you, if you're going to have uh, a real separation of powers in this country, you have to make sure that the executive abides by his constitutional prerogatives and limitations. And he's not doing that right now. Oklahoma Muslim Day at the Capitol took place earlier this week, and for the first time in its five years, participants were welcomed by, gov- by the governor. Uh, governor Stitt, uh, he made his way through the halls and welcomed the participants. The, the Tulsa World's Randy Crable reported there were also fewer protests yelling and calling the Muslims terrorists. Ryan, what's changed? Yeah, I think one of the things that's changed is you know, former State Representative John Bennett's not there to stir the pot. You know, it's, it, it gives a lot of what we've seen over the last several years, and one of the dangerous things in terms of Islam 
Islamophobia uh, that's existed in Oklahoma, it's not that it's, it's, it's existed because we know that it exists, um, but that it's been given credibility and legitimacy by state leadership. And for the longest time, that was Representative John Bennett, who held you know, these uh, kangaroo uh, court hearings in the legislature uh, that were you know, bigoted, that were uh, hateful. Um, and that spewed all sorts of uh, ignorant misrepresentations about Muslims in Oklahoma and about Islam. And what, when, you, when you don't have an individual there that has that mantle of authority and power um, that's out trying to uh, encourage people to show up to counter-protest, then that kind of goes away. Now, that w- doesn't just stop at Representative Bennett. Leadership allowed him to do that. And I think that uh, my sense is now that leadership from the governor's office down is less tolerant of that kind of intolerance among their ranks. Does it make a difference? Because he's a businessman. And, uh, and most businessmen will tell you, you have to reach out to everybody because everybody has to buy your product. Does it help that he's a businessman and realizes that all, all Oklahomans are valuable regardless of... Absolutely. And I think the one thing that uh, he said many times on the campaign trail, he reiterated in his state of uh, his inaugural address as well as the state of the state, and that was that he was going to be, he was committed to be a governor for all four million Oklahoma. And he's making good on that. He's making good on that promise. I think it's a sincere uh, belief on his part that he is there to do the people's business and that it is for all the people and what is best for all the people. And I think his approach uh, to uh, just like we've talked about how to reshape government, how to rethink how we provide services and make sure that we're doing what government is supposed to do and do it better uh, and more efficient and more economically, but but in a broader way that uh, that serves the the greater good. I think those are the things that he's all about. And he's a guy that's clearly, you know, I mean, he's not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. I mean, this is someone who is really um, uh, putting, uh, you know, putting a great deal of time and energy into his first uh, uh, couple of months in office. I mean, this is someone who uh, I think most observers at the Capitol would say, I mean, this is a high energy, high energy guy who is willing to uh, be on the move, making connections, uh, being around the people not only inside the Capitol but uh, across the state as well, so uh, it's very refreshing. And I think uh, I think that tone and I think that demeanor that the governor uh, is uh, demonstrating is really uh, uh, spilling over into the way the business is being conducted mm-hmm. uh, at the Capitol. And I think ultimately it will change the culture of our agencies and the mindset of how to do their jobs better to provide what they need to for the people of Oklahoma. So different, Governor Mary Fallon style was to take a, a back seat you know she she was she didn't project the power of the governor's office during her eight years and I, I think you know quite to her detriment her her agenda suffered Probably as a result of that popularity also went down uh, <clears throat> governor Stitt has not done that at all he has projected the power of the executive uh in in a, a very uh open and and uh you know he's i think that authentic way i mean when he, when he showed up at, at muslim day at the capitol it wasn't contrived it wasn't he didn't condition it as like you know he didn't have to show up and say well i'm with you on this but it, he just showed up uh and it, it wasn't there was no press conference. there was no so press he conference just he just said, walked in I, and in, in the same way that on monday uh, he had the democratic uh, leadership in the house and the senate over for breakfast at the mansion and had uh, had a conversation where they could begin to know each other better and uh, have a give and take and and those kinds of those kinds of efforts on the part of the governor will pay great dividends down the road in terms of getting uh, getting accomplished what he sets out as his major agenda points. And none of this would have happened without uh, CARE Oklahoma and Adam Saltani, their executive director, 
over the many years of, of having, this isn't the first day that they've done this and they've kept showing up even though many years they have had counter protesters out there yelling at them, insulting them, threatening them and their lives uh, as they walked into that building. And so Adam Soltani and their allied organizations that have been doing this and have been persistent have led to this moment uh, as much as Governor Stitt showing up. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.